Good morning and happy Mother's Day. This is such a privilege for me to be here with you on this Mother's Day. Um, this Mother's Day has been, like I said in our little promo video, is an unusual Mother's Day for me because it's the last Mother's Day that I get to have a child at home as a child. Like she now goes off to college and becomes an adult and all of those things. And it's an unusual topic to speak on Mother's Day, but this is kind of where I'm at. I'm dealing with worry, I'm dealing with anxiety, and I know a lot of you are dealing with it too. And so this is what we're going to uh, kind of spend our time on today. Uh, my daughter is now 18, she just turned 18, but when she was much younger, I remember reading the What If Poem by Shel Silverstein. I don't know if you guys grew up reading it, it was one of our favorite poems to read. So I'm going to just read a little part of it for you. Last night, while I lay thinking here, some what-ifs crawled inside my ear and pranced and partied all night long and sang the same old what-if song. What if I'm dumb in school? What if they've closed the swimming pool? What if I get beat up? What if there's poison in my cup? What if I start to cry? What if I get sick and die? What if I flunk that test? What if green hair grows on my chest? What if nobody likes me? What if a bolt of lightning strikes me? And Shel Silverstein goes on going on with all of these what ifs that fill his mind. And then he comes to the end and he says, everything seems swell. And then the nighttime what ifs strike again. You and I are in a place in history that we could write our own what-if poem. What if I don't wear a mask? What if I do? What if I get the virus? What if I lose my job? What if my children never go to school again? What if we run out of toilet paper? What if we don't have meat? What if we can't eat? And as I, as I sat and read this poem to my daughter when she was younger, it was very interesting to see how at a very young age, she had already began, begun to have her own personal waters. And then as I sat and reflected on my own life, I realized I sit in those waters. I, I could be a professional warrior. Uh, a few years ago, my husband went through, through a surgery. And at that point of time, we didn't know what it was. It was going to be, uh, uh, they thought he might have cancer or maybe it was just a bad infection. But it was in his lungs and the doctor wanted to do a biopsy of his lungs. So there was plenty of scenarios before us, but my brain went into the waters and into the worries. And so I had already thought of his funeral. I had buried him. I was worrying about life, bringing up three children as a single mom. All of the waters were going on in my mind. And I remember my oldest son was in high school at that time. And I you know, being this really responsible mom, I sat him down and I said, Ashish, you know, if anything happens to Papa, I just want you to know. And he looked at me like I was mad. And he said, Mom, you know how annoyed you get about people who go uh, on mission trips and they already have this preconceived idea of what the place is going to be like? You are just like that. You are going on a journey that we aren't on yet. 
this is what we're going to talk about today. So will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our God, that we do not get to go on these journeys alone, that crisis and troubles and pandemics and all kinds of things can come our way, but you are our God, you are with us, you are our God who continues to speak into our lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you would speak, that your spirit would nudge our hearts, that we would turn our eyes to you, and that in turning, we would find that you have transformed us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so why do you worry? I think I worry because it's a sign of how much I care. Uh, it's a sign of how much I care about the people around me. Uh, worrying, I think, helps me to solve problems. It's not true, but I think it helps me to solve problems. Uh, I think that worrying helps me uh, be motivated. You know, if I can build this much anxiety up, then it charges me into doing something about it. Not true, but I still worry. Worrying prevents, I think, prevents bad things from happening. If I can worry enough about something, I've averted the bad thing from happening. None of these things are true. Uh, the government of Scotland a few years ago put out a manual because people were dealing with worry, and they said that there are four things that are not worth worrying about, but account for a lot of our worries. They are the unimportant, the unlikely, the uncertain, and the uncontrollable. The unimportant. It is easy to fill our lives with the little things. You know, in the light of eternity, this thing that you're worrying about is not significant at all. But, you know, we worry about Meghan Markle's shoes or whether she's in, Can in Canada or California and not in the United Kingdom. Whatever. We fill our mind with this clutter that in the light of eternity has no value, no worth. There's, we worry about the unlikely. A lot of worries ask the what-if questions. All kinds of terrible things could happen today or tomorrow, but most things are unlikely. In fact, research shows that 99% of the things that we worry about do not exist. We waste our time, we waste our energy, we waste our happiness on these things. I look back even on last year, as my uh, middle son got married, I worried about all kinds of things before the wedding. I worried about the relatives coming, and I worried about uh, the wedding, and I worried about the arrangements. None of those things became true. We had a wonderful time, and many of our worries are like that. We worry about the unlikely things. An old proverb says, worry gives a small thing a big shadow. Worry gives a small thing a big shadow. And then there's the uncertain. Often we don't know how something will turn out. Many things we worry about have not yet happened. And we can only take action when we know what has happened. For example, I don't think there was a single exam that I have done that I have not come home completely devastated from. I would come home thinking, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. And then I sit and worry about it until the results come. Now, that whole interval period, I didn't need to worry because there was no way I could control what was going to happen once I had finished the exam. 
the only way I could do anything was after I had got the results. And then there's the uncontrollable. We have no control over many of the things we worry about. For example, worrying about growing older doesn't change the fact that you are getting older. This will be the case even if you worry as hard as you can, you're still going to grow older. Worry is a symptom of the deep-rooted fear you experience when you have to deal with the unknown. We humans prefer things to be predictable. We fear that any unexpected turn in events would throw all our meticulous planning, our control into disarray. The more energy we give our fears, the more anxious we become. Our mind likes to anchor itself to the known. And when the known gets shaken, it creates anxiety. And for many of us, that's where we are. The known is our health. The known is our security. The known is our job. And when all of these things get shaken, we begin to panic. We begin to worry. So what do we do about this? Well, many of us do different things. I know when I worry, I tend to overeat. Other people tend to talk too much. Still others need physical activity or therapy or medication. All these help to a certain extent. But there is a really interesting story in the Bible that God took me through when I was going through this really serious place of worry. And I want you to walk with me through the story. It's a story of a king called Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings of the Bible. He was a king who honored God. He was a king who loved God. He was a king who brought his people into a relationship with God. So you'd think that things would go well for a king who loved God so much. But here's what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. After this... The Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Muonites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, there's no time to waste. A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already in Hazazan Tamar, that is En Gedi. And the Bible says that Jehoshaphat was alarmed. And the word alarmed there could mean shaken and terrified. Now, you and I can relate with that. Crisis comes, trouble comes to all of us. And most often, it's not terrible. It's like 3 o'clock, you've forgotten to pick up your kid from school, so you're dashing and you're panicking about that. But there are big ones, like the pandemic, or you know your company is laying off people and you're not sure that you'll have a job by the end of the week. Or you get a mammogram uh, result that says that it needs to be redone. Or your child hasn't called from college in 10 days and alarm bells are going off in your head. Like Jehoshaphat, you are shaken. The unimportant, the unlikely, the uncertain, the uncontrollable feel urgent and take over your mind. You know, they say where rumination is a sign of depression. And rumination is running the past over and over in your mind. Worry is running the future over and over again. Now, I'm an expert worrier. I've told you this. And so I can put myself in Jehoshaphat's shoes. 
And I can imagine what he must have been thinking. Oh my goodness, what if God doesn't help us? I thought we were God lovers. What if God doesn't help us? What if we are destroyed? What if I am killed? What's going to happen to my country? <clears throat> How are my people going to survive? What, what if, what if, what if? But in verse 3, this is what the Bible says. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Jehoshaphat, when he was alarmed, he resolved. He resol- the first thing in doing, dealing with worry is to resolve to do something about it. And Jehoshaphat and all his people resolved to look to God. Hard situations come across us daily whether it's in our personal lives or it's in a, what's happening around the world, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where bad things happen to all of us. But at the core of worry is this feeling of vulnerability, a sense that I am not in control. And there are three things we can do about this. We can choose to live in the past and live in the should-haves, would-haves, could-haves, Or we could launch into the future with our what-ifs. Now, both of those methods are not helpful when you're dealing with worry. Jehoshaphat, he had a plan. He resolved to stay in the present, and he stood before God. This little passage of scripture that we're going to go through has a word that is repeated seven times, and it's the word stand. What does it mean to stand? Well, of course, it means to stand on your own two feet. But to stand means to hold a particular position. It's an attitude of the heart. It means that I'm going to stand here. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to run here. I'm here. And I'm going to hold this position. The opposite of worry is trust. It is being mindful of where I'm putting my trust. Jehoshaphat took his stand before God. And that's where he directed all his anxiety, his worry, and his fear. Now, standing is very restrictive. It focuses you. You can't run all over and do other things. If I stand here, it means I'm here, and I cannot be there unless I move, right? And the Bible in Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though there's chaos all around me, I will not fear. Why? Be still, God says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted. God, in essence, is saying, you can stand because I've got this. What do you do when you face hard times? Do you stand or do you run around? Who do you go to? We are always in the presence of God, but in prayer, we place ourselves in God's presence. Verse 5, then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, 
the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who's in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. This is the prayer that Jehoshaphat prays. And his prayer consists of three parts. The first part, he looks at who God is. He says, God, you're the one who rules. You rule over all creation. You rule over the nations. You are all powerful. You're the God who chose us. You're the God who covenanted to love us and be our God. This is who I am taking my worry to. This is what is important. When we stand before God, we need to know who our God is, right? Um, I remember there's this uh, phrase that people keep uh, throwing out. Don't tell your problem. No, don't, don't tell your God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is, right? When you remind yourself how big your God is, then you know you can take your problem to him. Verse 7 He goes on, Oh God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes against us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. The second part of his prayer, he looks back at his life and the lives of his people. And he looks at all these years, all these generations, through the years, God had not abandoned them. Yes, there was hardship. Yes, there was trouble. But God had been their God. He had never let them down. He's a God who lives with them. He's a God who walks with them. And he's a God who hears their prayers. There's a lot of research that shows that changing the way we think can actually change our brains, right? The Bible simply puts it this way. It says, set your minds on things above, not earthly things. I love the way the message puts this. It says, pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle around with your eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up, be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Turn your attention to who God is and turn your attention to what God has done in your life. All right, and then we go on to the third thing that Jehoshaphat does in verse 10. Here he says, But now here are men from Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The third thing that Jehoshaphat does is he brings his problem to God. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India, and as she was going into India, there was all these people coming with, you know, all of the problems she was going to face in India. And she said, I had feelings of fear about the future. The devil kept whispering, it's all right now. 
but what about afterwards? You're going to be very lonely. And I turned to my God in a kind of desperation and I said, Lord, what do I do? How can I go on to the end? And he said to me, none of them that trust in me shall be desolate. And that word has been with me ever since. You see, Amy Carmichael learned that she could keep her eyes on God. She didn't know what to do with the situation. The army was large coming against them. The battle looked really dangerous, but their eyes were on God. Matthew 6.25 says, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single R to your life? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on, of its own. So we stand on what we know about God. We stand on what God has done in the past. And in prayer, we stand in his presence and hand over what is troubling us. Now, this is really important if you are a worrywart, because taking a stand you stand against your mind running or down the path of worry and you strengthen your mind by focusing it on God. So what do we know about God from this passage? He cares for us. He values us greatly. What have we seen in the past? We, we see God has taken care of us. He loves us. He's take, uh, I woke up this morning without a thought of even how that was possible, but God took care of that. Jesus commands us, don't worry. Why? Because when we worry, we forget who God is. We forget what he's done for us. And then we forget who we are. When we commit our lives to our Lord Jesus Christ, when we have believed that he is Lord of our lives and turned in repentance to him, when we believe that we are his child, he who is our Lord of peace now lives in our hearts and his peace is what guards our hearts and minds. You and I can call ourselves the child of the living God because we have a heavenly father who is for us. We have a heavenly father whose love for us is fathomless so much that he counts the hairs on our heads, right? Even the ones that are going gray right now for me. You and I were whom he left all of heaven to come and live with and die for. You and I are his. We do not need to live like someone who is not loved. We do not need to live like someone who doesn't belong. We do not need to let worry consume us like someone who doesn't have a father who cares for them. When we know that we're the child of the one who holds the planets and the stars in space and owns all of it, why do I have to be in control? Can I go an extra inch by worrying? No, I can't control it, but I have a God who does. The most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Why? Because you have a God who holds all of those things that make you afraid. Now, if you haven't made that commitment to be his child and you're trying to live a life all by yourself, I humbly say to you, give up. 
it's not worth it. You have a chance to know a God who loves you and who cares for you. So let's get back to our story. At the end of that passage, there's a little line which says, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and their little ones stood there before God. You see, Jehoshaphat didn't stand alone. He stood with his whole community, including the little children. Sometimes when our faith is not big enough, our kids have faith that's big enough. And so one of the steps of dealing with the waters is to look to God. The second step is to wait Uh, is is to stand and wait in community. We wait with God's people. We wait with friends, not with friends who fuel our anxiety, but friends who turn our attention to God. You remember the story of David and Jonathan, where David is at this place where he is so frustrated because Saul was trying to kill him. He was anxious. He was worried. He wasn't sure what was going to happen. And Jonathan comes and meets him in David's hiding place. And Jonathan, the Bible says, encourages David in the Lord his God. Do you have friends who will do that for you? Go to them. John Ortberg says, never worry alone. One of the most powerful ways to stop the spiral of worry is to simply disclose your worry to your friend. Okay, so Jehoshaphat goes to God in prayer, stands in community. Let's see what happens next in the story. Uh, in verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. And he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. Tomorrow, march against them. They'll be climbing up the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. The prophet stands up and gives them God's perspective on the situation. Wouldn't you love to have God's perspective on our situation, right? He says the battle is the Lord's. You don't have to fight them. Face them. Don't be discouraged or afraid. The Lord will be with you. And so then we see what happens here in verse 18. Jehoshaphat bows down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. You see, the battle had not yet been won. Nothing physically had changed in their situation, right? But as they turned their eyes to God and as they affirmed his covenant with them, And as they stood there and handed their problems over to him, their worry gave way to worship. Right? Nowadays, it's hard to sing aloud because we're all sitting at home listening to our church services over uh, the internet or whatever it is. Right? But sing aloud because your worry will give way to worship. Singing, they say, and releases endorphins into your system and makes you feel energized and uplifted. Singing boosts your immune system and helps you to fight disease. It increases your life expectancy. 
So people who sing are healthier than people who don't. So sing and sing loud. We know how music calms us and helps us relax. But these men and women sang praises and they sang loudly. They reaffirmed what they knew about God. They reaffirmed their gratefulness to God and his work in their lives. They reaffirmed their confidence in the promises of God. Paul and Silas did this when they were in jail. They had no assurance what was going to happen to them. But you and I know how that story ends. These people sang their trust in God. So listen to how the story ends. In verse 20. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat didn't get his army all situated. No, he appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his holiness. And as they went out at the head of the army, they sang, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. They sang the song of a God who loves them. Because the one thing that is unchanging in our lives is God. He is unchanging. His love is unchanging. His love never fails. You see, on the cross, he took all of those things that make us worry. He took the things, the, uh, the things that we are anxious about, whether it's separation, abandonment, sin, just judgment, death. Uh, he took it all on the cross and he promises to be our unchanging God with us no matter what. So as they begin to sing, verse 22, as they begin to sing and praise, the Lord said, ambushes against the men of Amnon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. And I'm going to let you read the rest of the story. But Jehoshaphat's story ends with this mighty victory. God proved once again that he holds the nations in his hand, that power and might are his. Now hardships come in our lives and they may not be dealt with in a day. Like Lazarus, God may seem like he's four days late. Or like Abraham, the wait might last for 25 years. Or like the men in Hebrews, all of their lives, they do not see uh, what the end of the situation is. But in this passage, seven times, the author asks us to stand. So this is what he says. Stand up. Choose to stand. Don't run away. Don't let your thoughts go all over the place, but like Jehoshaphat, resolve to stand. Stand in the presence of God. Take it to him in prayer. Stand before God and wait for him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Stand together in relationship. God has brought you into a community of believers. Stand with those who will turn you to him. Stand firm in faith. Stand to sing. Praise and do it loudly. Stand against sin. God has all that troubles you. He knows what, he, what worries you, but he wants you to stand and let him do the work. Put on the armor of Christ. Be prepared. Wear righteousness, truth, and faith, and salvation. But having put them on, the Bible simply says stand. Because deliverance comes only from God. So I'm going to end with these questions. 
What are you standing on? What do you know about your God? What has he done for you in the past? How has he been to you? Now look up. What are you putting your hope in? What aspect of his character or promises are you looking at? When the waters attack, don't give in. Stand. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you, Lord, for the story of Jehoshaphat and the ways you remind us that we are not people uh, who should be skittled by problems, people who run around and worry and be anxious. But you call us to not fear. You call us to stand because you are a God who fights our battles. And so we commit ourselves and our lives and our battles to you, trusting you for what only you can do in all of these. We ask this in Jesus' name.